March is Women's History Month, a celebration of the women who have made a lasting impact on American history. And we're highlighting two outstanding women of SWRI, contributing to a better world through their space science and engineering work and through their efforts to bring more women into their fields. That's next on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast, presented by Southwest Research Institute. From deep sea to deep space, we develop solutions to benefit humankind. Transcript and photos for this episode and all episodes are available at podcast.swri.org. Share the podcast and hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm Lisa Benia. During Women's History Month, we recognize the impact and achievements of women across a range of fields. The 2023 theme designated by the National Women's History Alliance is Celebrating Women Who Tell Our Stories. Their website reads, Women's Stories Expand Our Understanding and Strengthen Our Connections with Each Other. At SWRI, we have many women who shine in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and many like our guests today are actively working to increase female representation in STEM. SWRI planetary scientist Dr. Tracy Becker and civil engineer Dr. Aaron DiCarlo join us today to share their stories, talking about their work, their community outreach, and a special initiative at SWRI to support women in STEM. Welcome, and thank you both for being here, Tracy and Aaron. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. I'm excited about our conversation today. I think this is a really important conversation to have. During Women's History Month, it's even more exciting to uh, talk about your work and share your stories. Let's start with learning more about you, two women we are celebrating during this Women's History Month. So tell us about yourself and your work. What is a big project you're currently working on and what professional achievement are you most proud of? Let's start with Erin. I am in the materials engineering department. And my work is actually more statistical in nature, so it's an uncertainty quantification. And let me tell you a little bit about what that means, because usually one of the first barriers I have to break in any given meeting (laughs) uh, or presentation is telling people what uncertainty quantification is. But um, in engineering, oftentimes we don't have lots and lots of data to support some of the engineering decisions that we're making namely around material properties or material performance. And so what we're dealing with in uncertainty quantification is trying to assess our actual state of knowledge about how those things are going to perform. So we bring in modeling, uh, we bring in data, we bring in experts (laughs) um, in trying to um, assess how confident we are that 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 new thing is going to actually perform. So what's an example of a material that you might test? great question. So two um, material systems that we're interested in these days is um, additive manufacturing. So additive manufacturing is um, we have a machine on campus. Um, There's lots of different additive manufacturing methods, but one of them is powder bed fusion. So you are subjecting a high-powered laser um, against a layer of powder, and you're trying to form the part and the material um, as you are moving that laser around. And so the idea is sometimes in space applications or maybe in um, 
in the field, you're trying to create a part that you need, and you need to make sure that it's going to perform. So we try to bring in models and bring in past data, maybe that has been made from that um, uh, same powder or same part, or sorry, same machine, um, and try to predict how that will perform. That's kind of the overarching goal. What professional achievement are you most proud of? Um, I don't know if it's a, strictly a professional achievement. I mean, one thing is, you know, getting your PhD, as I'm sure Tracy will <laughs> can also corroborate, is a big professional achievement. But I think sometimes I look at the smaller moments. So um, one thing that um, I'm proud of is, I guess, coming into some confidence over the course of my career. So uh, about three years ago, I had a colleague leave, and he was a a phenomenal researcher and I had to take over a project for him and it was humongous shoes to fill and I was feeling a lot of trepidation about it and so um, the first meeting that I had with the team um, I had to ask a lot of questions and I had to try to come up with a solution and over the course of about two weeks I came up with a solution and presented that solution and they loved it and that was the one of the first times where I went from like you know oh my gosh, can I do this, to, oh, I actually can do this, and I'm enough, and my work um, uh, means something. And and, um, anyway, so that was a very big moment for me in terms of pride in my work and also, um, yeah, feeling confident, like I I, I can do this. I can handle this. I I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. that, That in and of itself, I think, in our profession, in our careers, we have those moments and those are so important to building us up to the next big thing, whatever that may be. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for sharing about yourself. And I'm going to move over to Tracy now. We want to learn a little bit more about your work. Um, you know, what's a big project you're currently working on? I know you have many and um, tell us about a professional achievement you're most proud of. Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of really great work going on in the space science division. We have a lot of missions, a lot of exciting projects. And one of the ones I'm most excited to be part of is the Europa Clipper mission. This is a NASA's next big mission. It's heading to Jupiter's moon Europa, which is an icy moon, has an ice shell with a liquid water ocean underneath. And there's more liquid water there than all of Earth's oceans combined. So if there is life in the solar system, this is a great place to check. Yeah, And uh, that is, sort of the goal of the mission. The mission itself's goal is to assess the habitability. So if the conditions there are right for life, not necessarily to find life, but to see if the conditions there could support life or maybe in the past supported life. Uh, And the Southwest Research Institute built two of the instruments that are on board, uh, the mass spectrometer uh, called MassSpex and the Europa ultraviolet spectrograph, uh, which is the instrument that I get to work directly on. So that's one of the really exciting projects I'm involved in. Um, Another one being... uh, Other projects that I get to work on um, uh, include data from the Hubble Space Telescope and uh, mostly studying things like asteroids and trying to understand what they're made out of, their composition. We've used a lot of uh, different Hubble data sets to do that, but we're also getting JWST, James Webb Space Telescope data, uh, just this week uh, coming in soon. So we'll get to really kind of take it to the next level to understand these asteroids. All right. Exciting work you're doing. Um, What's a professional achievement you're most proud of? So I think mine uh, reflects a little bit on what Aaron said as well. Um, For me, I think it is those moments of 
realizing you can kind of do something that you weren't sure that you could do before um, and proving to yourself that you are capable. I think that's always a really um, important moment in anybody's career. The exciting part about the type of research that I do is, is being part of a team and learning, trying to learn something new uh, about the universe that we didn't know already. And so um, most recently, we put, pulled together a team of scientists and engineers at Southwest Research Institute, but also at, um, with scientists and engineers across the country to put in a proposal idea to land a, a payload uh, on the moon and study and look for signatures of water on the moon. And I ended up leading this effort and it was a lot of work, um, but it was something to be really proud of because we really put in a, an excellent idea, um, really working with all these different instruments and all these different people across the country. And uh, we don't know yet if that will be selected by NASA, but I'm still really proud of the work that we put in and, and the way we were able to pull together such a really interesting idea. All right. Well, you have a great track record with NASA. So uh, here's hoping that that one gets picked up as well. Uh, I wanted to ask you about asteroid 26471, Tracy Becker. <laughs> I don't know many people who have an asteroid named after them. So tell us about that. That had to have been a big moment for you as well. Yeah, that was very exciting. Uh, one of the projects I didn't mention uh, that I work on is also um, radar observations of asteroids using the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. And um, when I was a student, actually an, under, uh, an undergraduate student, I went out there for an internship and started working on a uh, basically trying to figure out the shape and the orientation of the first known triple near-Earth asteroid system. So this is a asteroid system. Uh, it was called SN263. That was that's somewhat close to the Earth. We pinged it with radar, so we were able to get its speed, um, just like a, a police officer's radar is able to know the speed and directionality of a car. Uh, we can do that with radar. And so, uh, but we can also get information about what its shape and size and rotation is. And so I worked on this project um, to understand the primary asteroid, but like I said, it's a triple. So this was an asteroid that had two moons and it was the first one that we knew of that could have two moons. Um, and as a result of that work, I kind of have a publication in the field of asteroids uh, early on in my career. And um, later on, uh, the two advisors that I worked for at Arecibo ended up putting my name in uh, for having an asteroid named after me. And so typically the asteroids are named after people who have uh, contributed in some way to the space field, and especially if it's an asteroid-related uh, topic. And so what's very cool about that asteroid, Tracy Becker, is that it's also a binary system. So it's also an asteroid with its own moon, uh, similar to the type of work that I was doing. All right, 26471, all yours. Amazing. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go back over to Aaron now for this next question. Tell us about your journey to get where you are today. How did you end up in your field of civil engineering? That's a great question. Um, so I'll go back a little further growing up, <laughs> yeah. as we usually do, yeah. right? Um, so growing up, I worked a lot with my dad. So he wasn't an engineer by trade, but we did a lot of home remodeling. <laughs> and it's so interesting thinking about that, because that's the first time I feel like a lot of people with their dads or, or moms, if they're so inclined, with their parents, right, just to um, work alongside them, we're problem solving, we're, we're you know, balling on a budget, we're trying to um, 
fix things, make things work, and yeah, ultimately doing a bunch of home remodeling. So I, you know, just that teamwork and that problem solving aspect, I really gravitated toward. And I was thankful that he gave me lots of time and, you know, listened to my ideas and things like that. So that was pretty valuable. Um, But then going into college, I went to Tennessee Technological University. And I did study civil engineering. Interestingly enough, over the course of studying civil engineering, I kind of hated it because (laughs) it was very code driven. So you have these big you know, code manuals for steel and for concrete um, uh, to help design. And I just didn't understand where those came from. <laughs> I mean, I understood conceptually where they came from, but, you know, you know, how do you know when someone's mixing concrete at a, at a site? You know, how do you know that its strength is X? Um, how did we know that we, de- we designed it properly? And so I just had all these questions and ultimately didn't feel like a very good civil engineer. Um, luckily, I had... Um, research experience as an undergrad with a professor in mechanics and she introduced me to concepts around composites um, and different material properties and failure modes and things like that Um, and that did inspire me to pursue research um, to and to apply for graduate school which I did I went to Vanderbilt University and studied under Dr. Sankaran Mahadevan and his specialty is in reliability engineering and um, uncertainty quantification. So that exposed me to those concepts and pretty much all the trepidation that I felt the, you know, how do we know that this that this material is going to perform or the system is going to perform uh, was validated by that whole field of risk and reliability engineering. Um, but my research was in hypersonics, actually, because if you think about um the, the things that we can test and the things that we know, there's not too many uh, hypersonics, wind tunnels <laughs> and things like that that can explore some of the phenomena that's going on at those speeds. And so that was a big topic in uncertainty quantification at the time. And I got to spend four summers at the Air Force Research Laboratory in Dayton, Ohio, and work with the Structural Sciences Center there and look at the aerothermal models and try to calibrate and validate them with the little bits of data that they that they had. Um, and the question or the overall question being, okay, what data should we actually go collect? And so that was kind of my first foray into hypersonics. So that was my PhD research. And then I came here um, and kind of back full circle what's actually happening at the material level. And uh, so, yeah, it's a nice full circle and thinking about those things from a holistic perspective. So moving over to Tracy now, Tracy, what planted the seeds for you? Uh, Tell us about your journey to get to where you are today. How did you end up in your field? Uh, So, yeah, I had a defining moment. I read a book in second grade called I Can Read About the Sun and Other Stars. And I later bought that book on Amazon a couple years ago just for nostalgia. Um, But it was a book, um, and after that, I was just hooked. I read every book in the library I could. um, And interestingly, looking back on it, I also was really wanted to share my knowledge even back then. So I would write my own books and, you know, with my own uh, artistic drawings um, of the planets. Uh, But I was just really, really into the solar system, um, into space as well, uh, but really into the solar system. And then... uh, I like to talk a little bit about this because even though I always knew from that point on uh, that I wanted to be a scientist, I really did try to, I did follow some of my other passions as well. So in high school, I did a magnet program 
um, but it was for global languages and cultures. And so, cause I was always very interested in language. And so I did that route and then still found my way back to space in college, uh, studied, I had an astrophysics, um, a bachelor's degree, but also had a minor in Latin American studies. And so I kind of carried on having two passions. And, you know, in the end, one of the things I love about that, it really helped me because then I ended up going to places like Puerto Rico to work at the observatory there or Chile to work at the observatory there. And so being able to know the language and some of the history of the, uh, for example, the country I was in when I was in Chile was really, really powerful. And so I like to sort of point out that even though I'm a STEM-focused person. Having some of that other knowledge and other parts of my interests play into it have been really helpful. Um, so I did my uh, undergraduate um, at Lehigh University, and then I went on um, to do my PhD at the University of Central Florida. Uh, but it was during that internship at Arecibo when I studied those asteroids uh, that I realized I liked galaxies and I liked stars, but I really, really liked planets. I really liked objects in our solar system, objects that we could like see through a telescope in a way like we could maybe even go there. Um, and that's what we're doing. So uh, I think that's when it really solidified that I wanted to be a planetary scientist. And I ended up um, studying Saturn's rings for most of my PhD work. And since then, I came back to uh, once I started at Southwest Research Institute, uh, I've been mostly focused on studying Europa and also re-exploring my passion for asteroids. So I loved that, that you both brought up the interdisciplinary aspect of your work, but also that you both talked about how the seeds were planted in childhood. So I think it's important, you know, pay attention to what the kids are are interested in, what they're reading, what they're doing, and uh, it, that may end up being what they do down the road. So thank you both for sharing your stories, your background. You each could be your own podcast episode. And I'd love to do that someday and learn more about your work. Um, but I do want to talk more about our topic today, which is Women's History Month. And um, with that, is there a woman in your field that you admire that you look up to as we observe Women's History Month? Tell us about a woman we should learn more about. We'll start with Tracy for this one. Sure. Yeah. So I think um, for me, it's it's sort of the the big names in the field, uh, you know, Sally Ride was always an inspiration to me. Dr. Sally Ride, who was the first uh, U.S. woman astronaut, first U.S. woman in space. And I had the absolute pleasure of meeting her when I was an undergraduate student doing outreach with a local school. And she was doing these um, tours where she would go and inspire fourth grade girls. So just like you were saying, putting that inspiration in there, fostering that inspiration when you're a kid. And um, so I got to meet her. So I mean, that just extra solidified the fact that she was incredible. I think at that time, you know, even though it was only it was like the 80s, there was still so much unknown about all those same pressures about women doing something that the men had already been doing, you know, and um, she had to face all of that. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. And uh, you need those pioneers to make it more normal. You need those pioneers to say, uh, you know, you don't have to look like Albert Einstein to be a scientist or or to be an astronaut or do any of the types of stuff that, you know, typically you only thought of as men doing. So for me, being at that level of pioneer, hopefully everyone knows Sally Ride's name, but if you don't, go look her up. Um, there's also a lot of really amazing people local um, because we're so close to Houston. 
um, uh, Eileen Collins was the first uh, female commander of the space shuttle, and she's actually on the board of the Southwest Research Institute. And I've had the pleasure to talk with her a couple times, and I find her to be an inspiration. So I think all of these pioneers in in uh, as astronauts are incredible. Um, even in the science field, too, there's um, a, a name that pops into my head is Linda Spilker, who is now in charge of the Voyager missions. She was also uh, head of the Cassini mission around Saturn for a while. And so she's someone I think is worth looking up to because she's um, doing really cool, cool things since the 70s and, and is, you know, really put her mark on on exploration of our solar system. So you gave us some homework here. If you don't know these names, go look them up. Dr. Sally Ride, Eileen Collins, and Linda Spilker. Erin, turning this question over to you now, uh, who is a woman in your field that you admire, that you look up to, that we should learn more about? Okay. Um, so my uh, the woman in my field that I think about is actually very local in terms of someone that's actually at Southwest Research Institute. <laughs> um, and she's in my department. She's in the materials engineering department. Her name is Dr. Vicki Painich. And so she is, um, she has no idea that I'm going to be mentioning her today. I saw her in the hallway this morning and I was like, hmm, anyway. <laughs> but um, so she got her PhD in chemistry and then um, through a roundabout, I think she came to work for Southwest Research Institute. But she's so fascinating because she's an inventor. She uh, led a team that won an IR&D 100 award for uh, the high power impulse plasma source um, developing or being able to deposit high flux plasmas at low temperatures or atmospheric pressures, which is a pretty transformational thing in terms of coatings. Um, you can ask, probably interview her all about it. But, um, but yeah, so she developed that. She won uh, 40 under 40 for San Antonio. And it's fascinating being in the materials engineering department and seeing its reach, but then also seeing the reach of individuals. And so I, I see that her and her team, she now manages um, a team that they they apply this plasma that she developed and um, in a myriad of different ways that are addressing not just coding problems, but also uh, problems in clean energy and clean water and hydrogen storage and things like that. So her individual reach just being uh, her individual reach is inspiring to me. Um, and I also see that she works collaboratively across the entire institute. So being here at SWRI, we are aware of Dr. Vicki Painich. Can you spell her name for our listeners? Absolutely. It is P-O-E-N-I-T-Z-S-C-H. So yeah, let's look her up too and learn more about her work. So great examples today of women we need to learn more about who are making history, who are inspiring us. Um, I want to turn now to uh, employee resource group here at SWRI. You are both members of Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, great acronym, by the way. Um, it's one of our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at SWRI. So give us an overview of WISE. What is it? And what is the group's mission? Our mission as part of WISE is that we aim to foster awareness. I'm going to read you the mission. Aim to foster awareness about issues that women face in the workplace. And um, our goal is to provide us supportive opportunities that encourage the growth of women at the Institute, women in STEM, and their allies. So one thing as WISE becomes an employee resource group, um, that our diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist, uh, Veronica Pacheco, will constantly say is that you don't have to be to belong. So you certainly don't have to be a woman to be in WISE and be come and be um, active in developing awareness for 
different issues that women face in the workplace. Um, and so we, we welcome all. So you don't have to be a scientist or engineer. Absolutely not. Yeah. Anyone who supports women in their work can join. Women in science and engineering. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so we've been around for a while before becoming um, a resource group officially, which is uh, new and exciting. But, uh, you know, this started sort of informally uh, several years ago by some of the employees here. Um, originally called WOZI, so mm-hmm. WISE, I agree, is the better acronym. Women of Science and Engineering turned in. Um, but it Good was... Good call on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so it was um, just an opportunity to meet other scientists, other women across the, across the institute that otherwise wouldn't have gotten to meet. And we often had speakers from the community, just leaders uh, in the community come and talk to us about what they do and um, how to be successful in their own fields, uh, which could be, which played into inspiration into our own work. So even for example, um, we had one really interesting guest speaker who was the head of a bank. And she told us about how rather than maybe go for golfing with her clients, she took them to a spa. And I thought that was so cool. And actually that ultimately involved, uh, evolved into the wise group one time doing our a manicure pedicure event um, why not at a local nail salon and so i think those are really great ideas that you can pull from anywhere outside of science and engineering too uh, of just ways to get people to connect with each other in ways that aren't as traditional um as has been in the past in in male-dominated fields while the group is an employee only group you both and many members are extending its reach beyond our campus and into the community. So please tell us about your outreach work to recruit women to STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, let's start with Tracy on this one. Sure. So um, I think one of the best ways is just reminding people again that you don't have to have crazy hair and be an old man like Albert Einstein to be a successful scientist in the field. And so just being out there and talking with kids, uh, I think goes a long way, no matter um, who you are, just showing that, you know, there is a diversity of people who are in the field and who are successful. And so I do give a lot of talks at schools. um, And I give a lot of uh, talks uh, virtually now, so I can reach people all across the country. And um, that's sort of just one component of the outreach that I like to do. Uh, another part of it, um, and, and I think I think for for a lot of kids, you've a lot of kids have never met a scientist. Period. So I think this is where it doesn't necessarily matter if you're a man or a woman. If you're out there and just talking to kids, that's an that's a really unique opportunity for them to actually meet a scientist and realize that you're a real person and not just in the movies. You know, like these super hidden uh, in a laboratory, don't know how to talk to anybody else kind of um, like uh, perception that people get from from the way that that film often um, shows what scientists look like. And so um, I think just anybody going out there and talking with kids and giving kids the opportunity to ask you questions is unique for most of them because most kids don't grow up knowing scientists. Uh, So I like to try to do a lot of that. Um, The outreach that I focus on as well is really meant to reach out to the whole community. So one of the things I love about being in space is that questions about space, questions about where do we come from? Are we alone in the universe? Those transcend culture, transcend age, transcend country, can transcend every aspect. Almost every person I've ever met has had that question and it doesn't matter what their background is. And so 
I love that being able to talk space, talk about space, talk about exploration, um, connects with almost every individual that I've ever spoken with. And so uh, we do a lot of outreach, not just to kids, but to just people in the community who don't even realize that San Antonio, that Southwest Research Institute is literally orbiting Jupiter right now. You know, part of something that was built here and touched by people here is currently in orbit around Jupiter or flew past Pluto a few years ago. And so um, that's where Astronomy on Tap really came in. And uh, Vincent Hugh and I started in 2017 so that we could really let the community know about how much cool science is being done here in San Antonio. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that, Astronomy on Tap. Sure. So um, Astronomy on Tap is an event where we learn about astronomy while drinking beers on tap. <laughs> and so we host it at, uh, at local bars. And um, it's open to all ages, though. Uh, but, you know, it's, it is a bar, but it's a restaurant. And um, yeah, the, really, that was the whole genesis of it was the idea of sharing all this really cool science, letting people know that the science is happening right here, so local to them. Um, and it's a, Astronomy on Tap is a national, actually international uh, organization. And we just opened up the San Antonio branch um, six years ago. All right. I don't ever let anyone say scientists and engineers are not fun because between the Manny petties going out for drinks all sounds like a blast to me. That's right. Yep. <laughs> We're people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love that you're putting, like you said, a face to the title of scientist. Erin, let's talk more about your outreach um, in the community. As an engineer, um, who are you talking to and, and what are what's your message? What are the questions you're getting? Yeah, so I, I think the the big thing for me right now is um, making yourself visible, right? It's kind of a hard thing as women to do sometimes is just reconciling with that uh, your own visibility. And sometimes you go into a room and you are the only woman in the room. And so just, you know, um, you're um, you are naturally visible, but then also seeking opportunities to be visible. So yeah, so recently I, me and uh, a colleague, Medea Vargas, who is a metallurgist in my department and a good friend of mine, she uh, conned me <laughs> into giving a, pre a presentation on breaking barriers in science as part of the Women's Global Breakfast. And so I'm hoping that uh, next year, SWERI will, or Southwest Research will, Institute will host a global women's breakfast on campus. And so that will be an exciting thing to do to, to again, let people network in within San Antonio um, as part of a professional organization uh, and just bring women together to to um, to network and socialize. So I think that the if I could um, go back in time and, and give myself some um, opportunities, it would be kind of around grad school time. So I do feel like um, the the time that I wish that I had a woman's voice or a woman's uh, insight into how to develop a career and build a network, it would have been during that time. And so I think going forward, that's what I would like to invest time in is how to reach graduate students and give them the confidence and give them the opportunities to build those build those networks and build those experiences. And so I think just cl um, more direct mentorship, um, looking around at at the, the mentors that I've had over my career have been ph phenomenal, first of all, uh, but they've been all men. And I value that, um, but I do recognize that there are sometimes there are differences in, in, in between men and women um, in the way that they navigate their careers and the way that they grow and the way that they interact with um, uh, people in their field. And it's not always natural. And so I think that... Um, 
talking about that and giving people space to talk about that and also helping people navigate that is something that I'm passionate about. Historically, women have been underrepresented in STEM. Why do you think this is? What barriers do women breaking into STEM face? Yes, this is Tracy. So um, there is a lot of research into this area. Um, So we could need a couple, maybe a whole series of podcasts to really <laughs> delve into, into that. it. Um, but there are a number of factors, uh, including just sort of the way, again, scientists are portrayed in the past, engineers are portrayed um, on in media. And, um, and there's a confidence thing that happens as well when when you tell someone that boys are typically better at math than girls. And that, you know, that starts to, the, to dig in. Um, there's a lot of focus on fourth graders, Uh, For that reason, that seems to be the age that younger than that, girls and boys seem to both think that they're equally capable and equally interested in dinosaurs and space and anything else. And um, after that, there's a a break and it's partly cultural um, because it really is, you know, there are plenty of other countries and cultures where there isn't this divide in the number of men and women who are engineers or scientists. So it's partly our own culture as well. And so breaking down those barriers, um, that representation, that lack of encouragement, uh, I think is really important um, as one of the main effects for why that, that starts to happen. But we there are a lot of resources, and I encourage anybody to go, if they're really interested in it, to go look up some of those um, websites and studies that have really talked about this. What do women bring into STEM fields? Why is it important to see an increase? Yeah, so I think that's a really great question. And um, I... I think that historically it's been suggested that just the skills that are more typically masculine are the ones that you need for STEM. And that's just not the case. Um, I think, you know, when you talk about some of the more feminine like traits, like communication and organization and these kinds of things, they're actually bring something so powerful to STEM field as well. And, um, we're just starting to realize this, I think. I think that the balance, and some people can have, you know, a healthy 50-50 of both of those types of traits, um, but having that diverse set of traits is really key. So being able to communicate is really important when you're trying to send people back to the moon. Um, And so if that's typically viewed as more of a feminine trait, then that's a good feminine trait to bring into the field and therefore bring more females in. And so, um, yeah, I think that there's always just been this perspective that, um, the type of skills you need is are just those ones that more men typically demonstrate, and it's simply not the case. It's it's that it's that um, interdisciplinary uh, aspect that's really going to push us to the next level in all areas. Yeah. So one of the things that you had mentioned, Tracy, was that um, yeah, getting people when they're younger. Um, another wise colleague, Bonnie Blackburn, she. Uh, referenced this uh, Planet Money podcast episode called When Women Stopped Coding, talking about um, in the 80s, you have this sharp drop off or had the sharp drop off in women that pursued computer science degrees because it was now kind of advertised and now um, portrayed as sort of a male field. And because men were, you know, interested and um, or advertised that they should go pursue computers and uh, technology and things like that. And, you know, women didn't have that. Um, The other thing is, you know, maybe by the time that they got into college, they had experience in, you know, tinkering around in computers and things like that. So then when they got into these classes, women got into these classes, they were immediately discouraged, you know, like you didn't, you didn't know this. How did you not know this? And 
um, I actually listened to this podcast, that podcast last night in preparation for this podcast because <laughs> she suggested it. And um, I kind of identified with that going through civil engineering. I had several, um, you know, m- men in my classes that they, they didn't discourage me, but I did feel like I didn't know something that I should have known in relation to construction or, you know, um, rivets or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so automatically going into a STEM field and feeling like you were immediately disadvantaged and didn't have some perspective that you should have had, um, I do think is uh, pervasive um, and um, hopefully that we can alleviate that by introducing STEM earlier, like, you know, Tracy is Tracy mentioned. Um, so another thing in terms of resources, I've been thinking a lot about kind of women in leadership and um, um, lead, and women in STEM and leadership. And so just some resources that I found interesting. There's a book called When Women Lead by Julia Borston. Um, it's from the perspective of women uh, coming into or trying to lead tech startups and trying to secure funding for those. And that's not too different than what we do in terms of R&D, trying to write proposals and uh, lead the field. And so I thought it was a, it's been an re- interesting resource for me. Um, and then also thinking about sp- specific skills that women bring into the workplace in terms of leadership. I think um, vulnerability and authenticity often sometimes is something that... Um, uh, is a powerful leadership skill, and it's maybe something that isn't usually associated with male-dominated fields. Vulnerability, right? Like, <laughs> but research is a very vulnerable thing. Uh, you're opening yourself up to doing something that's wrong and being wrong, and so I think um, bringing that into the culture is uh, something that is um, powerful. So there's a book by Brene Brown that talks about the power of vulnerability, and I found that really insightful as well. All right, great resources, and I I enjoyed listening to the how you tied in these traditionally um, female characteristics and the value they can bring to these different STEM fields. What does the future of STEM for women look like? I I hope that I I love that for the most part we see a lot of women doing a lot of things, but I do hope that we see um, more women higher up in leadership positions. I think that that's a powerful thing to uh, witness and observe and have as a resource for other women coming up behind them. Um, and that, that's not just leadership in terms of, you know, management and organization. That's, you know, technical leadership as well. So, um, yeah, so I hope that that we continue to see that and that growth. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, ideally it would be equal numbers of, of men and women working together. Um, I think uh, this extends beyond women as well. All, all different backgrounds and diversity really helps bring new perspectives. And if you kind of always just stick with one perspective, you won't make that really unique advancement in, in science and engineering. You really need um, to pull from everybody who's had different experiences and where they can contribute something unique and, and combine all of those ideas together. And so uh, for women in particular, yeah, I mean, if I think it should be, <laughs> I think there should be equal numbers of men and women. Um, I think men, I think boys and girls are equally excited to do a lot of this stuff. And so um, I just, I hope that women feel 
equally heard and equally included in in their research, uh, whether or not the numbers are equal. I hope women feel like they can certainly speak their mind. Um, they can feel safe in the environment um, and that they can pursue whatever it is that they want to do. I mean, if the, the ultimate goal is to learn something new in science or if the ultimate goal is to build a spacecraft that withstands um, supersonic speeds or whatever it might be, uh, that your gender or any other part of who you are isn't what matters. It's what what you have, you know, what you're contributing. And that's what really ultimately matters. So beautifully said. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All right. Great information today. Two amazing role models for women in STEM. And you both leave us optimistic that we'll see more women taking on the challenges of STEM careers in the future. We celebrate you and all women positively impacting our world this month. As we shine a light on women who tell our stories, thank you for sharing your experiences and your stories with us, Erin and Tracy. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for learning along with us today. You can hear all of our Technology Today episodes and see photos and complete transcripts at podcast.swri.org. Remember to share our podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Want to see what else we're up to? Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. And now is a great time to become an SWRI Problem Solver, visit our career page at swri.jobs. Ian McKinney and Brian Ortiz are the podcast audio engineers and editors. I am producer and host Lisa Pena. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.